Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Emily Burt. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. And this week we'll be delving into the world of legacy fundraising, its complexities but also those big opportunities that it presents in today's climate. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about a piece of charity news that's been dominating the national headlines in the past week. And that's the announcement last Thursday that the Interfaith Network for the UK would close after £155,000 worth of funding was pulled by the government. The charity is now due to close its doors in mid-April. And all of this comes because one of its trustees, Hassan Jaudi, is a member of the Muslim Council of Britain which the government has a policy of non-engagement with, dating back to 2009, when it was accused of supporting violence against Israel. The Communities Minister Michael Gove wrote a letter to the IFN expressing his concern for the inclusion of a Muslim Council of Britain member in its core governance structure, which he said posed a reputational risk to the government. And he said he was minded to pull the funding, a threat that he subsequently followed through. The government argues that taxpayer money shouldn't be used to legitimise the influence of organisations like the Muslim Council of Britain. This is a really big story. And um, yeah, what I find particularly weird about the move is that the letter from Michael Gove itself acknowledges that the Muslim Council of Britain was already a member of the Interfaith Network when that offer of funding of £155,000 was made last summer. But Michael Gove is saying in this letter that he finds it, quote unquote, deeply concerning that an MCB member could be appointed into the core governance structure of the IFN. For myself, I find this to be a flimsy argument. Really, the appointment of trustees has nothing and should have absolutely nothing to do with the government as a funder or frankly otherwise you know and the IFN has said how disappointed it is that the government offered no opportunity for dialogue on this matter since the move was announced you know we had seen it being trailed for quite a while because it was last December in fact that the members of staff at the IFN were put on redundancy notice Mm. but it was only last week the 22nd of February, that the board confirmed it would have to close. We've seen a lot of backlash over this from the public, and we've also seen charity leaders expressing concern about the closure of another long-standing infrastructure body in the sector. And I have to say that on a personal level, I feel like this move by Michael Gove sets a very disturbing precedent for the charity sector, because I can't see really any evidence of wrongdoing on the part of IFN that could justify this withdrawal of funding. And this has been echoed by leaders across the sector. You know, we saw Deborah Alcock-Tyler, who's the chief executive of the Directory of Social Change, writing last week that the move was a clear act of interference in the governance of a charity. And she said, you know, I mean, how does this play out as a precedent? Is the impact going to be that charities will in the future be afraid of appointing trustees who are quote unquote disliked or people who might have made comments in the past in a personal capacity that the government doesn't like, doesn't approve of? So for me, this really does look like just one more example of efforts to chill the work of charities. And I do find it very worrying. Yeah, I mean, I guess... The other side of the argument, um, which the government has also put forward, is that charities should not be wholly dependent on taxpayer funding in order to operate. I guess that is a point. 
But particularly in the current climate, it's a real kick in the teeth, isn't it? Where getting fundraising is so challenging. And how much was it that charities are subsidising public services at the moment? 2.4 billion. 2.4 billion pounds subsidy on the part of charities for public services at the moment. The fact that we can be existing in this environment and also have the government saying, well, but you really shouldn't be relying on our money to survive, to me seems, yeah. Kicking the teeth, I think, is appropriate. Now, just before we get to our main interview, we'd like to share with you details of another podcast, which is produced by Third Sector's parent company, Haymarket. Did you know that one in six species in Great Britain are at risk of extinction? My name is James Ajapong Parsons, and I'm the producer of The Eco Chamber, a weekly podcast that investigates the deep-rooted issues facing our country's natural environment and the policy that underpins them. We give you the facts, insights, and exclusives that no other podcast can. The Eco Chamber, digging deep into stories that matter. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Moving on to the main part of today's episode, we're here to talk about legacy fundraising. The Chartered Institute of Fundraising estimates that a gift left in a will is likely to be the biggest donation someone ever makes to a charity. But given the sensitivities around death, both before and directly after it happens, and the legal complexities around the administration of estates, it's rarely the easiest fundraising channel for charities. But Emily, I understand covering legacies is something of a passion project for you. Absolutely. Yes, I have a real soft spot for the world of legacies and legacy fundraising. And I think that for a long time, it really has been something of a niche in the charity sector for exactly those reasons you outlined, you know, the cost of investing in legacy fundraising, the slightly fuzzy returns on investment in that area. And like as you say, it's not very easy to market death. And I think in this country, we have like a real problem when it comes to talking about death in any way, shape form, let alone trying to fundraise around it. But if you get legacy fundraising right, it really can generate the most extraordinary outcomes for your charity. And that comes particularly where donors choose to bequeath a portion of their estate rather than, say, making like a fixed term gift. Look at Cancer Research UK, for example. Their latest set of annual accounts, they recorded a single legacy gift of £44 million. Now, of course, that is very unusual. Don't expect that you'll be making that if you decide to go pitching into legacy fundraising after you listen to this podcast. It's one of the biggest gifts I've ever heard of, but this world can also be really wacky and unusual. You know, legacies date back hundreds of years. One of the most unusual legacy stories I was ever told was about a man who bequeathed his own testicles in his will. (laughs) writing, I leave them to my bank manager as he has no balls of his own. (laughs) Um, But to briefly come back to Cancer Research UK, of course, this is one of the UK's largest fundraising charities. So they will have the resources to make those kind of investments in legacy fundraising. But we are now starting to see some of these barriers towards legacy giving being removed thanks to websites like Farewell, which has made it a lot easier for people to sort of write their own wills, bypass kind of the legal mumbo jumbo that a lot of people have to go through. And we're also seeing, I think, changing donor attitudes where people sort of want to give to smaller, more local organisations. That's been a trend we've seen since the pandemic, really, when people's worlds became smaller. And for me, I think it really is just like this very vibrant and potentially quite untapped stream of income for charities that it's always worth thinking about. 
Well, we're very happy to be joined today by two guests who share your enthusiasm mm-hmm. for legacies, Emily. They are Lucinda Frostick, director at Remember a Charity, which brings together 200 charities to support their legacy fundraising by promoting behaviour change. And Anish Yilma Palmer, the new chair of Remember a Charity and head of legacies at the British Red Cross. Hi to you both. Hello. Morning. And Lucinda, if we could start with you, um, you must have quite a unique viewpoint perspective at Remember a Charity. How are things looking for legacies at the moment? I've seen numerous bits of research recently which reach widely diverging conclusions. What direction do these seem to be going in and is there anything you're particularly concerned about? Wow, that sounds like a very big question. So (laughs) I'll, I'll try and break it down into a few parts. So starting to begin with in terms of how do we feel legacies is going? Well, I think it's been a really exciting time for legacies lately because last year, for the first time, we heard that legacy income, annual legacy income, broke the £4 billion threshold. I mean, that's a colossal sum of money. And while, of course, legacy income growth is driven by a number of different factors, some of which are within our control and some are beyond, so the economy, much as I'd love to fix that, (laughs) it's not within my power uh, or any of our power. But of course, what we can do is inspire more people to leave gifts in wills. And with baby boomer generation coming through, we're anticipating that that growth in numbers will translate, of course, and help to sustain the legacy market. We might see a sort of short term dip in terms of legacy income over the next few years, um, but we're expecting long term growth. And actually, you can get a whole host of different sort of resources in terms of the latest research from Legacy Foresight, which can tell you more about their projections for the legacy market. But so all in all, it's it's looking pretty rosy. And I think legacies have played such a crucial role in sustaining so many organisations across the sector lately. And I think what I feel most passionately about, and perhaps Emily, we need to get together for a coffee on a separate chat and we can share our excited tales about legacy some other <laughs> time, but is that we are seeing more smaller charities coming into that sphere. There are sort of ten to 13,000 charities named in wills each year, which is fantastic. We're seeing new charities join the list. I think about 2,000 new charities receive a legacy each year, according to Smee and Ford. So fantastic to see that growth there. And that's, I think, is is driven by a couple of different factors. Yes, of course, people are more aware of gifts in wills, and I very much hope that's in part due to the work that that we're doing here at Remember Charity to grow awareness and understanding of how easy it can be to leave a gift in your will and how incredibly inspiring and positive it can be. But it's also down to what charities themselves are doing. And I think there's, you know, take us back... um, 10, 20 years, and there was much sort of greater fear around approaching legacy fundraising. Whereas I think now there's broader understanding, both in terms of fundraising departments, but also CEO board level, that actually a conversation about a legacy doesn't have to be a conversation about death. Quite the opposite. It's a conversation about what happens next, how you can inspire, shape and influence the world you leave behind. So all in all, I would say it's fairly positive. You asked also about sort of trends and how things might be changing. So I think I've covered briefly that we're seeing greater breadth. But I think one of the other really interesting things that we've seen and are starting to see perhaps more so over um, as the baby boomer generation starting to come through is a shift in the causes that people are choosing to remember in their wills. So yes, absolutely, local community-based charities are starting to take more of a prominent role. But when it comes down to causal areas, certainly health and animal charities remain front of mind for many. But we're definitely seeing a shift too towards sports charities, uh, mental health charities, human rights 
So really interesting to see greater breadth there too. You asked about concerns about the marketplace too. When it comes to concerns around the legacy market, I think part of that is driven by the economy. As I mentioned a little earlier, legacy values are very much influenced by the shape of the economy. So effectively, if house prices and share prices are doing well, legacy values are inflated. House prices have taken a little bit of a tumble. And that's why we're expecting to see slightly more subdued growth or even perhaps a a short term dip. But it's been really encouraging to see house prices start to take a turn again. And that should therefore put us in a slightly better position. There is, of course, the probate situation, which remains a real challenge for us at sector level, but also for individual charities too. With the backlog at probate, we know that for many charities, they've simply had to hold back on vital work that they really need and want to carry out and haven't been able to do. That again, there is a silver lining to that cloud in the sense that we are starting to see higher and better output levels from probate. So while it still remains a concern, there's certainly a more positive future when it comes to sort of probate figures and and how we hope that charities own income levels should indeed fare. Wow, that was so exhaustive. I mean, we might as well stop now, to be honest. But uh, (laughs) initially, it would be a shame if you had come all the way in here and we didn't ask you something. So I would love for you to sort of tell us how important do you think it is that charities are incorporating that legacy fundraising element into their wider fundraising strategy? Like, Why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's about giving your supporters, your donors, the opportunity to support your cause, your organisation in a way that suits them. I really like the term marketing death, actually, in your intro, because I was like, oh, that's that's a really interesting way to see it. And actually, it's marketing hope, especially in terms of what we do at the Red Cross. It, it's marketing a hopeful future when we're no longer here. And I think giving supporters the opportunity to make a difference when they're no longer here for a gift in their will is something completely different to the other fundraising options that they have within an organisation. And for us, it's really important that it becomes part of the mix of options. So it's not more important or less important or for only a special group of people. We need to be able to open out this way of fundraising for supporters, put it in front of them so that they know it's an option, because often people don't know they can leave a gift in their will. And give them the the tools and support they need to make the right decision for them. And in terms of, you know, ensuring that that kind of continuity piece, so thinking about what you leave behind. And and you were interesting, you were saying, you know, people don't seem that aware that they can leave gifts in their wills. How do you start that conversation with potential donors? Yeah, it's partly about normalizing the fact that you can leave a gift in your will. So that's why the the work that Remember Charity does is so important in changing culturally you know that idea of writing a will and leaving a gift to a charity and that that normalization makes it less scary less difficult it takes away that barrier or one of the barriers that there is to leaving a gift it's also about talking about it in cohesion like I mentioned with other ways to support the charity so that we frame it as an option for the supporter to take if that is the option that's right for them so you know, we talk about cost of living crisis and how that's impacting on fundraising right now. It might be that our most engaged donors of the past are unable to support us in that way with a regular donation or a cash gift. By letting them know that they can leave a gift in their will can spark that maybe interest and knowledge that they can continue to support a charity, no matter whether the money's coming in now or in the future, it's still 
securing our future impact for the beneficiaries that we work for. And then practically speaking, as a fundraising team at the British Red Cross, how do you ensure that you have continuity in terms of your messaging with your donors with whom you're building a relationship and hope to receive something from them now if they're able to, but then also at the end of their life? It's all about storytelling. And it's, you talked about like collaboration. There is collaboration across fundraising and marketing at the Red Cross to ensure that we've got a real clear thread of who the British Red Cross are, what we do and how we spend our money, whether that money is coming in now or in the future. And the impact that we have, that we impact that we have now helps us to paint a picture of the need and where we will step into in the future. So if we at the Red Cross, we're an emergency response organisation. People know about our work in, on the ground right now because we're often in the news or in the press. And for us at Legacies, it's us to build on that narrative. So talk really positively about the impact that we're having in the world right now, but also stating that these issues, these crises, unfortunately will continue on to the future. And our place at the Red Cross is to be there ready to respond whenever a crisis hits. And so that is how we share that narrative with our sort of emergency fundraising teams and other teams that are trying to generate income right now for, for what's happening on the ground. And us to be saying, look, whatever happens in the future, we will still be there to respond. And therefore, if you leave us a gift, hopefully we won't receive it anytime soon. But when we do get that gift and when crisis hits, we can respond thanks to that. And in terms of how you get those important messages out to the right audience, can you talk a little bit about how you do that, how you target people, the sort of channels that you use and what you have found to be sort of the most effective methods or tactics of reaching those people? So part of that is about learning about our past legators, so people who have left a gift in their will to the Red Cross before. So, you know, we're very lucky at the Red Cross. We have a fantastic insight and analysis team. So we can look into our CRM and look at our legators of the past and try and build an understanding and, and sort of pen portraits of who those people were, why they supported the Red Cross, were they volunteers previously or had they given us a regular gift for many years before leaving us a legacy. So that's part of understanding the audience that have been our legators of the past. And then there's the secondary part of understanding okay, who's your audience now and who's your audience of the future. So as Lucinda spoke earlier about all the insight that's out there, there's a lot of positive news and noise about audiences changing and attitudes to charity and, and also a greater awareness of gifts and wills. So for us, it's about, okay, that's fantastic. How do we now make Red Cross relevant to these new audiences who are hearing about wills, who are taking action in writing their wills and potentially leaving a gift? What is it that resonates with those audiences and how can we tap into that? And so that, you know, if our calls or area is something that they're passionate about, then we're part of that mix when they write their will. So part of it is about us just getting out there. So we do mass marketing, mass media. So we're, we're on TV, we, we go in the press. And that's about building an awareness of who we are as the Red Cross, what we do and what we achieve and the impact that we have. So that's about building that interest and, and resonance with the audience. And then what we try and do is give opportunities for those who are interested to connect with us to find out more information. So whether that be linking up with their local community legacy manager, which we have at the Red Cross, to have a more deep, meaningful conversation 
just about will writing, let alone leaving a gift, there's an option to them. If that supporter is ready to write their will, then we have partnerships with will writing providers to help them take action because we know that's another barrier to people writing their wills. At the same time, as well as like acquiring this interest and, and trying to gather that interest of leaving a gift to the Red Cross, we make sure that we have solid journeys in place to ensure that we're continuing that, that conversation. We know that legacy giving is a long term fundraising stream for people and um, it's not a decision that is taken lightly and we need to respect that so giving the opportunity for the supporter to find out more to understand where their money might go to quiz us as an organization building that transparency between us and the and the supporter means that they hopefully they feel more informed and more confident when they are deciding to leave a gift to us and then it's about working with them to communicate our impact and effectiveness right now in a way that suits them so whether that be through communications or the opportunities to meet us at events trying to find new ways to connect with our audiences and i can imagine that it must vary according to what type of audience you're trying to reach whether they're young or older is there a specific um, generation that you're really targeting at the moment and if so how are you trying to reach them yeah i guess as Lucinda said, you know, with the shift of interest in the boomer generation and now Generation X, we're always in legacies having to look forward, like look forward to the audiences and the and the legacy donors of the future and find out what makes them tick. So, you know, where traditionally we may have marketed through door drops or some very paper-based marketing, we also know that there's a growth in generations using digital spaces to get their news or gather information or gather reviews on how they do anything from buying a microwave to writing a will. So we need to be in those spaces so that we're connecting with people and also building that that understanding and that resonance of leaving a gift and it's something you can do and make it part of your thinking. So yeah, we've had to innovate as of many charities. So you'll see investment from going from those more traditional methods of door drops say and telephone marketing into more digital spaces using social media and it's really exciting because as Lucinda said there's more and more charities coming into this space which means that generally the noise about charitable giving in wills is growing which is fantastic and for us as individual organizations now it's about us building that tangible idea of the impact that those gifts will will have so that supporters can be clear about what sort of impact they want to leave when they're no longer here. Absolutely. And I always think of Red Cross as one of the biggest innovators in in terms of the channels that it uses. You know, I think your TikTok is absolutely remarkable (laughs) and how you've managed to connect with this really young Gen Z audience. So, I, you know, maybe we'll see some legacy stuff appearing on there as well. Who knows? You're never too young to write a will, right? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's really interesting the types of say social media I think that's quite a good space to talk about because there's social media is so many different things to different people and used in so many different ways and we've had to develop as a legacy team working quite closely with other fundraising teams our digital fundraising team our brand team to understand which messages from the Red Cross are best served on what platform Mm -hmm. to what audience and how we target and I think what is great and like you said innovation at Red Cross we have the bravery to test different 
audiences, test different messages. You know, we're lucky enough to have the resource and expertise so that we can try different things. We can monitor and see, okay, well, is that working with that audience? Are we generating the interest from the people that we want to speak to? Because we also, you know, as well as acquiring new legacy prospects or people who are interested in legacies, I mentioned about taking them on a journey and keeping that engagement. If we're generating a lot of support from younger people in writing their wills and leaving a legacy, that is fantastic. But we also have to be aware as an organization to maintain that relevance. That's going to take a lot of work from our side as well. So is it that that relevance has to sit with the legacy team rolling out a legacy journey over, say, potentially three or four decades? Or how do we work collaboratively with the brand messaging within the organization to ensure that the information and the motivations of that individual for supporting us or, or taking interest in the first place is being fed back to them so that they feel like they're connected, engaged and in control of their relationship with us. And you mentioned obviously Red Cross is a massive organisation and you are able to invest some time and resources into experimenting with different ways of reaching your audiences and looking back into the past and seeing what has worked most effectively. A lot of charities in this sector don't have the luxury of doing that. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the financial resources to invest in that. So do you have any thoughts on how charities can effectively manage the short-term versus the long-term thinking? Because obviously with investing in legacies, you, you may be looking decades ahead before you can actually get the return on that. Do you have any experience of maybe trying to persuade people above or the boards either at Red Cross or in in previous organizations that you've worked with that this really is a worthwhile use of the charity's time and resources now yeah absolutely I mean it's 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 that fuzzy ROI point (laughs) which was made right at the start it is it is it is a challenge um and it takes bravery from our senior leadership and our trustees because as Lucinda said you know there's a lot of things that are within our power but there's a lot of stuff that is out of our power and we have to be able to be confident in the risk and the effort that we're putting in for estimated reward is essentially what it is. I think, you know, if you don't have the resource available to mine your data or understand who your audience is, absolutely start small. If you're a smaller organisation, you're probably more close to the supporters on a sort of one-to-one interaction So start by asking your supporters, have you ever thought about leaving a gift? Or did you know that other charities are talking about leaving a gift in your will to charities? I think Lucinda's got a point. Lucinda's desperate to jump in, I can see. (laughs) Sorry, it was was fabulous to hear you say that because I was just thinking exactly the same thing. I mean, digital has been a wonderful leveller. I think for so many charities and and with legacies, it just feels to me it's, this is your chance to use your superpower, isn't it? And if you're a small organisation, and you have close relationships with a smaller number of supporters, tapping into that is your superpower. And that's a wonderful thing. And when it comes to digital, it doesn't actually have to be hugely expensive. What we can see from within our consortium, because we have a huge breadth in terms of the kind of charities that we represent, is often the sort of 
more rough and ready stories that we share on social from our smallest charity members, where they're just sharing a lovely emotive story about how legacies impact the work that they can deliver. And it's often really quite grainy and something probably wouldn't pass many big charities sort of brand or marketing teams. It's those that really are building connection with people on our social channels. And so I would say, give it a try. And the other advantage with digital, of course, is that you can, just as Anish said, you can test and learn. You know, if something's getting the right kind of responses, do more of it. If it's not, change it up a little bit. And we can all have a go with that. So I think that's really exciting. And it has that sort of openness in terms of more willingness to be open around our storytelling and openness to using digital to share those legacy stories has perhaps been that that greatest leveler. So that's been really exciting for legacies. Brilliant. That's very optimistic. And are there any other big opportunities that you're seeing in the legacy space that charities should be taking advantage of? Oh, that's a very big question. I think, yeah, digital is is really what springs to mind. But generally, I'm thinking we're seeing amongst the public growing appetites for giving to charity from your will. So I think if there's been something that's been holding you back from branching out and having those legacy conversations, whether that's externally or whether that's internally within the board and securing their support, it feels like now is absolutely the right time. The market is there, it's ripe, and the work that we put in now is, of course, what's going to be enable charities to secure their futures for the next generation that comes through. So I think when it comes to smaller charities in particular or those who haven't yet sort of brave the legacy market. This is your opportunity. Be bold. Give it a shot. A great opportunity now to reach out to supporters at a time where legacy appetite has never been higher. And with your discussions and your insight into so many charities, is there ever pushback from the board? Is there? Do you see any sort of common problems that charity management faces in trying to get the board on board with the idea of of legacies? So I think there are two main barriers that spring to mind and Anish you might have be able to kind of respond to this in a better way because you're closer to all of that than I am but the two things that I would say is is one yes nervousness about whether it's appropriate to broach what are perceived to be conversations about death or sensitive conversations around legacies with such valued and important supporters you know are we putting the cause at risk is this an appropriate conversation a general lack of understanding at at sort of board level can be a real challenge and the other one is largely linked to sadly the economic situation that we're in with charities having to cut their budgets that means that no matter how great the potential is for legacy income over the next uh, generation and more you know we're up against a very real challenge that charities need income now and sadly that means if legacy cuts have to be made occasionally that means that it's happening in the legacy space. So those are those are two ongoing challenges that are very front of mind for us now. Anish, I just wondered if you, what your thoughts were on that one. No, I think you're absolutely right there. And I think, although those are challenges, I think it d- does open up potential for new thinking as well, like systems thinking within, within legacies and within organisations. So I'm thinking back to the uh, Remember a Charity webinar that took place last week, bringing together philanthropy teams and legacy teams. So there's a real sense of, okay, well, how can we share resource? If it's not that we can have specific resource for any area, how can we work together? Find your peers within an organization who understand the huge potential that has in legacies for your organization. But if it has to start small in that drip feed message, that that is something that you can start right now without risking income right now so I think there's opportunities and what's really 
really good to see in the sector right now is how legacy teams have often been to one side doing their own thing, own departments sometimes, but actually we are dispersing and, and being more collaboratively working with other departments within our organizations to ensure that legacy message runs alongside other messages. So I think there's huge potential in that and and, and especially in that deeper engagement and, and stewardship piece as well. Thank you both so much. And just to close off then, if there are any charities listening to this conversation right now who are feeling really inspired and energized and want to go and seize those opportunities in that legacy market, do you have any top tips for them for getting that journey started? Yeah, so I think a good place to start. There is a lot of energy out there in the sector. There's a lot of great stats out there to build your conversations for support from. So immerse yourself in that. There's plenty of free resources and webinars. I know people often time poor because legacies might be just one of the many strings that you have. But if you can find some time to get some of those headline facts to sense the, the opportunity for your organization, grab onto those. If you can take a little bit of time to understand the legacies that have come to your organization before, it might have been one or two, but look at how much they have tr transformed the impact of your organization. That's also really great. And also just start building that conversation within your organization. So whether that be with your fundraising teams, with your finance teams, if you can start building that understanding and that, and that sort of potential impact that legacies can have, um, it just makes it easier to then start navigating that that discussion upwards and, and building a case of support for doing something within legacies. And just to add to that, I think I might be stealing some of your words here, Anish. But yeah, having a clear and succinct sort of call to action, what is it that you want people to do and setting out the vision of kind of what it might enable, how you're going to transform the lives of beneficiaries or or whatever your key messages is really important. But it's also about making it as easy as possible. If we want to remove the barriers, we need to make it easy. So that's a case of signposting where they need to go to find out more information, whether that's a case of you being there on hand to answer questions or whether that's a case of signposting them to a local solicitor or whoever else can help them take it onto the next level. That's really key. And I guess the final message I'd just say is a legacy gift is a long-term thing, but that doesn't mean it's the end of their giving journey. There's countless research to show that people who leave a legacy are, are much more likely to actually go on and support the charity in other ways. The gift might be realised at the end of the journey, but it's by no means the end of their giving journey, or at least it doesn't have to be. So uh, thinking about that, I think, is really important in the wider supporter journey. Brilliant. Lucinda Frostick and Anish Yilmapama, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week. Next week for International Women's Day, we'll be joined by Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive of the British Heart Foundation. But for now, thanks to our guests, Lucinda and Anish, and our producer, Nav Pal. <laughs>